Welcome back to Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. And here we are again on video. We normally don't do video podcasts, but I have such a special guest today and we have so much to talk about. I have Mayor Billy Kaiserling here from Buford, South Carolina. So welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. We have quite the conversation to have you and I. We got some. Oh. We got some heart-centered leadership things to talk about. But well, I'm I'm ready. Let me let me tell everyone a little bit about you because I could have I could have printed multiple pages of your bio, but I condensed it because I thought I'll bring the the rest of the greatness out in an intellectual stimulating conversation. Sound right. good? That's right. Now you have worked in Washington D.C. for almost sixteen years where you provided administrative and legislative duties for members of the US Congress. You have coordinated international human rights initiatives, and you've also worked as a public affairs consultant. I do know that you returned to Buford in 1989, and you have served two terms there as the South Carolina House of Representatives, where you were vice chair of the Joint Legislative Committee on Energy, and you also served as the chairman of the Buford County Legislative Delegation. And then you decided to seek a third term in legislation and you were elected to be the mayor of Buford on their council in 2000 and you served one term. And then you became the mayor again in 2008 and you've been reelected in 2012 and 2016. So I think that you are definitely a heart-centered leader being reelected the way you were, and the people of Buford are obviously have a lot to say in reelecting you. So I'm throwing a quick question in here before we start, but how did that make you feel when you switched from being on council in that role as a representative <clears throat> over to being mayor and doing a few terms now? Um, well, first of all, probably the most flattering thing is that there's really no higher honor than to be the mayor of your hometown because as mayor, that's where the rubber hits the road. That's where you're approached in the post office. That's when you go into a restaurant and you can't go uninterrupted because people want to talk to you. <clears throat> but the bottom line is most things can be solved in 24 hours. Mm -hmm. And we often, when I worked in Washington, when I was in the state legislature, you know, problems were pink slips and phone calls to return. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> now there are people who are waiting to hear from me. And so I believe that, that being, being mayor is probably the single most productive of kind of public elective position one could have. Um, I was particularly honored when um, after losing the first time I ran in, 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 in 2004, um, in 2008 I was elected, um, in 2012 no one opposed me, in 2000. Uh, 16, no one opposed me. And had I chosen to run again, um, you know, I sort of hoped I'd have opposition if I ran, because opposition is good. Yes, you know, absolutely. I, I actually ran campaigns when I was unopposed with signs and advertising. And people say, what are you doing? I said, I'm running against myself. How can I make myself a better, a better mayor? And that public exposure... That is a heart-centered leadership trait. You know, it's not just the 
the given traits that we know of attentive listening and compassion and empathy and really executing and modeling the virtue of patience. But, you know, I grew up in a small rural town before I moved to the city and I, I really align with what you said. It's fun to see the mayor in the drugstore, in the grocery store, in the post office, and having that five-minute hello and, and how are you going, and, and usually being asked a question. And like you said, you may not have the answer in that moment, but you surely will within 24 hours. And now it's just a different modality of communication, isn't it? Right. You know, it's funny, when I was first elected mayor, people would approach me and say, hey, mayor. And I said, I'm still Billy. Call me Billy. <clears throat> and then I was told by a very close friend, you're really insulting people. Um, you know, you're being very selfish. They want to be able to say mm -hmm. they were with the mayor. Yeah. So we compromised, and now I'm Mayor Billy. And, and that's sort of my, 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 my nickname. Well, and it's such a warm, it's a welcoming way to say hello to someone because they're honoring your stature. You've worked very hard over the years with your education and work experience. <clears throat> I'm sure you bring a lot of life experience to the role and, and the personalness is still there. And, and I know from my rural hometown, we did the same thing. So it, I think know, it just makes you more relatable. I know, but you know, when I speak to groups, they always have a podium on the stage. <clears throat> and if I can, I spoke to a group of inmates at a penitentiary for they were getting their, their uh, a couple of months ago, where they were getting their high school diplomas and GEDs. Mm. And I said, why would I stand on a podium, hiding behind, hide behind a podium, standing on a stage and look down on them? So I took the mic loose, I walked down to the floor, and I said, I don't want to talk at you. I want to talk with you. I want to be able to look you in the eye. I want to be able to see what your expression is. I want to have a conversation, which is why I wanted to do this on video mm -hmm. rather than just audio, because I think that conversation is such a, uh, an important ingredient in, in, in leadership and in civility. And, and I think this country needs desperately to be having more conversations. Oh, I agree with you. So on that note, here's my first question. I would love to know, and, and I'd love for you to share with the listeners, there's a lineage in your life where leadership started for you. Who mentored you or fostered or introduced you to leadership? And when do you think you really kind of drew that line in the sand and thought, this is for me and wanted to pursue it? Yeah. Actually, it was sort of late in the process because you know, I, I, I grew up with an incredible family that was unusual for what we would call the Deep South. I'd argue if it's really not the Deep South, but people think so, where there was an incredible moral compass about giving back. My grandfather was an immigrant, uh, came from Lithuania as a teenager, escaping from the, uh, across a border from, from the czar. Uh, my uncle was a, a New Deal Democrat who wrote legislation, social security, farm bill, housing. My father was a country doctor and most of his clients um, <clears throat> were, were poor people who couldn't pay him. And then my mother, uh, a liberal New York Jew, uh, resettled at first very unhappily in Beaufort. Mm -hmm. But at the age of 54, she said, I can't take it anymore. And so she ran for county council 
Uh, turned out she was the largest vote getter in the, in the race, <clears throat> but she found on county council that she really couldn't do the kinds of things, the environment, public education, uh, promoting culture, the arts, her values, her moral compass. Mm -hmm. So she ran for the state legislature. So she was the first woman ever elected to Beaufort County Council. Um, and then she was the first woman ever elected um, to the state legislature from, from Beaufort County. Ironically, however, her political career actually started after mine. And I, I, I actually mentored her. That's not, not to take away from her because we were very different. Um, she, she had in many ways a lot more courage. She drew sharper lens, lines in the sand. I'm, I'm more, more consensus driven because I like to get things done. I, principle's important, but sometimes getting half, half a bite is better than no bite. Mm -hmm. Also giving someone else that other half a bite mm -hmm. <clears throat> will help me the next time. And so I, I'm very consensus driven. Doesn't mean that I don't have hard, strong values, but it means when I go to seek something. Mm -hmm. So I, I spent time in Washington, first as an intern with an incredible man, Senator Fritz Hollings from South Carolina. Um, my uncle Leon um, took me under his wing, um, having worked in the Truman administration, Roosevelt and Truman administration. So they introduced me to it. But I think it wasn't until um, I came back to South Carolina and I said, gosh, I've had such wonderful experiences, but I also don't feel that working for all these people, I've ever done anything. I've been waiting on the table. You work for a senator, you become a parrot of that senator's ideas. Mm -hmm. You work for a congressman, you're a messenger. You represent mm -hmm. somebody else. And I said, I know somewhere in here, I have a voice that's worth hearing. And so when my mother decided to retire from the, the General Assembly, the legislature, mm -hmm. um, I said, you know, I've been waiting tables all my life. Um, maybe I should try to sit at the table and see what mm -hmm. that's like. I was fortunately elected. I got involved in very ugly uh, reapportionment issues. Mm -hmm. um, I got redistricted out of my seat. The other party said, if you switch parties, you can be here forever. I said, who wants to be here forever? I didn't come here to be here forever. Mm -hmm. And so, but I wasn't going to let them chase me away. So we don't have independent status. You're a Democrat, you're a Republican. But if you go out into the streets and knock on doors, you get signatures. Mm -hmm. So I won in a district that was designed for me to lose as a Democrat, as a petition candidate. And I won overwhelmingly because I got to have conversations with people. I could walk away. I could walk away. It's, I don't want to take too much time, but this is a fabulous story. <clears throat> when I knocked on a door of what some people would call a redneck, I'd say a resident of Beaufort, <clears throat> living in a double wide modular home, yeah. pickup truck, you can, you can envision the pickup, you can mm -hmm. envision his Harley Davidson, Mm -hmm. <clears throat> on the bumper sticker of the on the on the pickup truck fender uh, bumper, there was a sticker that said "Don't kill babies." <clears throat> In the back window, there was a, a gun rack filled with guns, mm -hmm. and on the whip antenna to his CB radio, there was a Confederate flag. Now, <clears throat> those are three issues that ring hard with me. <clears throat> I knock on the door, and, and I said, "My name's Billy Kaisling." He says, "I know who you are. I'm busy." <clears throat> I said, "Well." like it or not, I'm your state representative. I'm going to be running for re-election. 
and I think you ought to have a chance to, 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 to meet me. And I also think I need to listen to you. And he said, well, go ahead, but be quick. I said, well, you know, I see the bumper sticker and you're suggesting that if someone doesn't agree with you, they want to kill babies. I don't know. I will never know what an abortion means to a family, to a woman, mm -hmm. <clears throat> because I, I've never been married. I've never born a child, <clears throat> but I don't think it's an, that's the bigger issue is how much do I want the government telling me what to do with my personal life? <clears throat> I said, I see the guns. I said, I'm not against hunting. I wish my father hadn't been a country doctor and he'd had time to teach me to hunt and fish and do what everybody else did, but he didn't. Mm -hmm. But I'm not against guns, but I did sponsor legislation that says that if an adult owns a firearm and it gets in the hands of a juvenile mm -hmm. who harms somebody, that mm -hmm. adult is criminally liable. <clears throat> and by then he was ready to, and I said, but you know, <clears throat> the flag, you're desecrating the flag. It's getting rattled. Now, it's not the flag that represents the Confederacy. It's the flag that is, is the battle flag. <clears throat> it didn't go up until the 1960s as a sign against segregation. Mm -hmm. It belongs in a museum. It should be there, but it doesn't belong on top of the state house, which is why I voted against it. Mm -hmm. And by then he's ready to slam the door. I said, one, one, give me one more minute. <clears throat> I said, I see your Harley. I came on my Yamaha. I envy your Harley. <laughs> but I, they have the reputation of, you know, anyone who rides a Harley mm -hmm. can always find their way home because parts, it vibrates so much parts drop on the highway. So they pick up the parts they're home. <clears throat> and he laughed. And I said, before I ever vote to make you or me wear a helmet when I ride my bike, I, I will vote to outlaw fried chicken because more people die from heart disease mm -hmm. than head injuries. And he looked at me and we parted. You know, I ran to a friend's house to drink a beer. I wasn't gonna knock on doors anymore. About a week later, I'm walking down the street and I see him across the street. He walks across the street. He puts out his hands and he said, this is gonna surprise you. And I said, what is that? He says, I'm gonna vote for you. And I said, half of all of that, he said, you're the only politician who has ever told me the truth. Mm -hmm. That's a big lesson. That's an important. It is a big lesson. And thank you for sharing that story. And I'll tell you what I love about it. I used to be a disability case manager. And I remember one week I got two referrals. One was to a gentleman who rode a Harley and was in a biker gang. And the other one was a professor who was teaching in Canada from Asia, and he was also in a car accident. They both had severe orthopedic injuries. And it was such a lesson to myself that it didn't matter much like you. <clears throat> I showed up as dead pro. That person's social economic or psychosocial status wasn't going to change who I was as a heart-centered leader. That's right. it, it didn't matter if I was sitting in the garage surrounded by a bunch of guys in leather or I was sitting in a fancy, 
you know, big mansion with someone who had a much different lifestyle. And that story and what you just did, you treated that gentleman like a person and you wanted to break down some <clears throat> barriers with information. So well done. And obviously yeah. it's a testament to why you've been reelected by the residents because- I, I, I'll go into some restaurants with absolute strangers. I'm going to meet somebody, but on the way to my table, I see somebody with something on their plate that looks good. I very often, even if it's a stranger, <laughs> will sit in the booth and say, can I have a bite? And that some will look at me, <clears throat> most of them, and it's more African-Americans because somehow they're less uptight. Yes. <clears throat> um, we'll just start laughing. They'll pick up the plate. They'll say, here. Yeah. Now ask a child with an ice cream cone. They're not, no way. <laughs> they're, they're, not, <clears throat> they're not ready to get in my space. But I quite frankly think that this social moray of not getting in people's mm -hmm. face, mm -hmm. not touching each other appropriately, um, is wrong because I think we all have a shield around us and we're dying for someone to pierce that shield so we can touch them. Our, eye, our eyes can meet and we, we can feel that we have mm -hmm. the name of the book, Common Ground. Absolutely. So my next leadership question, all my guests get, and I named the podcast Imperfect because I do firmly believe and wholeheartedly believe that we all bring beautiful imperfections. So what imperfections do you bring to your heart-centered leadership? Well, speak from the heart, tell the truth, and own your mistakes. <clears throat> I don't have any imperfections. No. My, my principal imperfection um, is unleashed passion mm -hmm. and impatience. I want to move everything faster mm -hmm. than the world wants them to move. Mm -hmm. And I have to, I'm aware of it, and I have to so often put on the brakes. I have to mm -hmm. slow down. I have to say, if I want to keep it going, Billy, don't, don't, don't talk them into the ground. Don't over talk mm -hmm. the issue. Mm -hmm. Don't push it too hard. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, and I think that's, that's my, in, my principal imperfection is that when I get something, I am so single-minded. I'm, I'm, I'm dyslexic. I'm attention deficit. <clears throat> and when I see somewhere I want to go, I want to go there. I don't want to run over everybody. I want them to come with me, but I have to wait for them to get ready to go with me. Well, and I love that because you, you identify it, but then you foster it with your leadership and you know that you need some discipline and structure and, and the passion's going to unfold just maybe in a little bit longer timeline. So that's, that's very interesting. Well done. <clears throat> now, I know that you are writing a book with a lifelong friend and a mutual colleague that we both have, Mike Greenlee. And the book is called Sharing Common Ground, Promises Unfulfilled but Not Forgotten. Can you share with the listeners where the passion came to write the book and what's the biggest message you want to convey when people read it? <clears throat> Let me reverse it and tell you the message first. Um, the, the message is that and we see it in the newspaper, we watch it, we turn on the television. I hate to read the newspaper, I had to watch the television, and I'm a news junkie, particularly since I'm, I'm not a great reader. Um, but we're in a chaotic world. Mm -hmm. We are being divided, we're being manipulated. 
And uh, I've realized over the past 20 years as I've been studying and working on this, that it's intentional. Mm -hmm. That we have been, black people and white people, have been intentionally educated to mistrust, to demean, Mm -hmm. and to hate. And I believe that through my background and knowing my own moral compass and the relationships I've been able to foster, that if we go back to one, we could go to many, but if we just go back to one period of history called the Reconstruction Era, we can begin to see almost any headline that comes out in the newspaper today, I will have a story about Reconstruction and how we got to where we are. If you look at the, the, the people protesting, if we looked at, no pun intended, but trumped up charges, um, you go back to the Jim Crow laws, the black laws. Reconstruction was a period where quite to the surprise of many, mm-hmm. freed former slaves became self-sufficient pretty quickly. Now it happened differently in different places and at different levels. But they started colleges and universities, 16 of them. They became professionals. They became successful businessmen. Black Wall Street and Tulsa, an example. But as blacks began to succeed, notwithstanding the fact that they'd been slaves, because I think the Africanisms, the African in them, in the DNA survived slavery. Mm-hmm. So they came out. They didn't have choice to say, well, I'm going to be a victim. They had to feed families. So they had the resources they knew, many of which they brought from Africa, some which they probably learned um, during slavery. But they were immediately fast to the punch. And there's so many heroes, uh, 1,200 plus African-Americans elected to public office in a, in a window of, you know, it's debatable how long it lasted, but let, let's go with the official, you know, 1863 to 1877, but in many places here, it started in 1861 and lasted until 1900. But as soon as they began to succeed, the powers above, those who want to divide, said, wait a minute, I got to maintain my power. And the way I maintain my power is I take that poor, white, sharecropping dirt farmer, and I make him feel threatened or her feel threatened by the success of blacks. And I bump them into each other because if I have been eating a piece of the pie and all of a sudden I'm told I have to share that piece of the pie, my instinct is I'm losing something. Mm -hmm. And so they use simply the pigmentation. And and, and, and the, uh, in my senior year of high school, I wrote a, a, a semi-thesis for a fabulous history teacher. <clears throat> and it's the only paper where I got an A-plus for creativity and an F for history. <clears throat> and it was a history course. Mm-hmm. Because I wrote a paper, what if, during Reconstruction, the poor white farmer and the freedmen had found common ground. Mm. and what strength they would have had had they bonded together mm-hmm. and not been pitted against each other as they still are today. So, you know, that's, that's the storyline is that let's stop, look, and listen. How did we get here? Yeah. Where are we today? 
And what can the knowing what we've learned from these untold stories that are not taught, mm -hmm. but what can we learn today that can make us individually and as a society great? How can we find those promises of, of reconstruction? That were, that were not fulfilled. Reconstruction of the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments, the Freedom Amendments, freedom, ownership of land, birthright citizenship, mm -hmm. and the right to vote. All of which were passed with the help of black leadership. Mm -hmm. All of which were methodically chipped away to the point that people today, black and white, young and old, yellow, are worried about their safety on November 3rd when they're going to vote. That is, that happened in 1868. That happened when voter suppression, literacy tests, people were armed guards at the polling places. That happened and it's happening today. So we gotta understand how that happened. And <clears throat> there are a lot of solutions out there. Some talk about reparations. I don't think money works. Um, I think what we have to repair is the soul, mm -hmm. not the economy. Mm -hmm. We've got a lot of band-aids out there about what we're going to do with police and what we're going to do <clears throat> with economic justice and how corporations are going to spend money teaching sensitivity. <clears throat> but the bottom line is that in our soul, we have a hole. And that hole was created and is sustained by a civil war that is not yet ended. And so if we can begin to look at it that way. Now, scholars are writing books. Henry Louis Gates is doing some wonderful stuff on PBS. But it's like for a non-reader like me or for a, an un, a less educated mother who wants to do right for her children who herself has been taught for three generations wrong. Mm -hmm. So uh, the strategy um, that we've come out with is let's take the 11 to 15 year old student and let's try to let them have some of the experiences that former slaves and freedmen had. Let them become curious about where they came from. Let them wonder if maybe their great, great, great grandfather became a, a college president mm -hmm. or an elected official, a member of Congress, a senator, a mayor, a doctor, Booker T. Washington, educator, George Washington Carver, a research scientist, unparalleled in many ways by others, but they don't identify with that because mm -hmm. we've, never, we've never been taught that. Mm -hmm. So we really have to, but I believe that these 11 to 15 year olds, having run a leadership program since I've been mayor, um, of bringing this group, age group together, their, their, their minds are still like sponges. They've not yet developed the filters they do not know the difference between black and white. <clears throat> and all of a sudden they get to an age where their start, parents start pressuring them mm -hmm. and making parental decisions mm -hmm. based on their parents' lack of education. And the kids are smarter. They're not, they didn't choose to be born. <clears throat> They're not born stupid. They're not born mean. They're not born to hate. They're innocent. So if we can get them at that age, ultimately, <clears throat> um, we can get them to challenge their parents. Mm -hmm. We can get them to challenge their siblings. We can get these conversations going. And let's start at the dining room table. It ain't gonna happen in Congress. We've been waiting too long. In many ways, it's not gonna happen in city councils, county councils, legislators, but we can change it. If you look at the LBGT, 
revolution. It, it wasn't a congressional action. Mm -hmm. It was people seeing a green flag. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> when President Obama and Vice President Biden, who actually did it the day before, said this is a civil rights issue. Mm -hmm. It's not a personality issue. Mm -hmm. it's, it's right of every individual. Well, all of a sudden that was a green flag <clears throat> and said, you can talk about this stuff. You know, it's real. How you've been feeling and how you've been hurting for mm -hmm. all these years is real and you can talk about it. And if you talk about it, they didn't say this because they're not psychologists, <clears throat> but when you start talking about this stuff, you can begin to feel better about yourself and you oh, can, absolutely. You, you can, you can find out who you are. Well, I think that after our 16 year struggle to get a national reconstruction era historical park, that's the same kind of a green flag. Mm -hmm. It's okay. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and the, the, the scholarship is accelerating. There are more books coming out. Mm -hmm. They're not they're historical novels, but they're not reaching mm -hmm. the people who've been pitted against each other. They're reaching mm -hmm. the intellectuals. Yeah. They're reaching the students. They're reaching the policy analysis. Mm -hmm. We got to get to the heart and to the soul. And I believe these kids by making short videos, by writing songs, by doing slam poetry, <clears throat> by writing little books, A, every time they do it, it uplifts them because they mm -hmm. feel better about themselves. Mm -hmm. But B, the message they deliver is more likely to be heard than a teacher teaching it. And, and the teachers haven't teached it. The ultimate goal mm -hmm. is to not need African-American history, to have an, a complete American history. Mm -hmm. The ideal goal is not to need a Black Lives Matter because we've demonstrated that all lives matter. People yes. say, well, why don't all lives matter? Well, we have a record of proving they don't. Yes. And so as a, as a public official, I can shudder when I hear Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. because I know it means so many different things to so many people. Mm -hmm. but, but, you know, it's, it's, it's like Africans in, who are restoring, uh, digging up and restoring their culture Mm -hmm. um, as the Gullah culture, which is unique to our area, and you should come here, um, and you should be a come here, as they call it, not a been here. Uh, you should be a been here, not a come here. But uh, when I dressed up in the African clothes, I said, well, why are you doing that? You're just pointing out something. Well, they're, they're beginning to, to identify and to find out who they are. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then once we accept them from who they are, and they accept us for who we are, and we understand that nobody's perfect, but that we can be civil, mm -hmm. that we can have conversations. We're going to surprise, we'll be so surprised at how much we have in common. Absolutely. And Absolutely. so that's, that's really the purpose of the book. It's sort of, it's not history. It's not an autobiography. I use, I leverage stories about my own personal development, mm -hmm. having a unique opportunity growing up the way I did mm -hmm. um, to put attention <clears throat> to the fact that these stories are there. Well, I, I'm looking forward to getting a signed copy. So, and I will, I will get to South Carolina. It's on my list. I haven't been there yet, but I will get there. Now I, I, I'm going to have some fun with you. I like to end the podcast with what I call the fab four. So I'm going to ask you four questions and it's whatever's sitting on the top of your head. Are you ready? I'm ready. What words? One word would you give to the year 2020? Chaos. What inspires you? 
hope. If I gave you a time capsule for 2020 and you had to put items in it to bury it for the future generation to dig up in decades to come, what three things would you put inside? You got to put your book. <clears throat> well, I, 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 <laughs> I, 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 I would put my book. I, I would put a, a reawakening mm -hmm. that notwithstanding the chaos, the fact that people are opening their eyes. If you look at the mm -hmm. 1619 project, <clears throat> if you look at, at, at some of the stuff that's being written, I mean, people are beginning to talk. Yes. As we haven't before. Yes. And, and, and that's why George Floyd didn't give his life, mm -hmm. but that's what his life began to free people to do. Yes. So I think it would be symbols that through chaos, we can find some freedom to be who we are, mm -hmm. to express ourselves peacefully. Yes. Um, and that's what I put in that time capsule. Now, I know in July, you had said, quote, it's time for me to step aside to something else. Right. So my last question is two parts. Number one, what is next for you? And number two, what do you want your legacy to be? <clears throat> I would like my legacy. Somehow I want to ask your, answer your last question. That's okay. That's okay. <clears throat> I want my legacy to be someone who has planted deep seeds mm -hmm. for change, for change, mm -hmm. for change in social justice, for change in human relations, mm -hmm. for more civility. I'm not going to see in my lifetime the, the harvesting of these seeds, but I think if I can help plant them mm -hmm. with these young people, they will, they will be sown mm -hmm. and we can go back to those unfilled promises and be the great nation that we promised we would be, mm -hmm. that we've lost. Um, so <clears throat> I've started an organization and um, I've been working on it for several years um, and it has two purposes. The first purpose is to be a support organization <clears throat> for the National Park Service, Reconstruction Era, National Historical Park and network of sites across the country. Mm. And that would be to raise money, renovate some of the structures, mm. make them interpretive centers. It would mean to co-sponsor programming with them. It would mean getting kids out and about. It would mean making videotapes <clears throat> so that people can visit virtually because one of the problems with museums is, is sort of like scholars, mm -hmm. is that people can't get to them. Yeah. And I was, at first it was to get a, I wanted to build a museum. And then I realized the museum is bricks and mortar. It's expensive. It's hard to maintain. But the bottom line is, how do you reach people? So that takes me to the second mission, part of the mission, which is to build a network of teachers across mm. the country who are taught how to teach experiential-based, arts-infused education, mm. which means how do you help that student that 11 to 15 year old put himself or herself in a situation from history and figure it out and then tell it in any way he or she chooses. Mm -hmm. Because I think those are the leaders of our future and it's not too early to begin. So if we build a network, we have a model 
<clears throat> which is an English teacher, um, a, a media teacher, a visual arts teacher, a social studies teacher, <clears throat> who would work with kids to help them ask, learn how to ask the question, learn how to be reporters like you, how to sit face to face and ask Reverend Doe, what is a praise house? Why did they have praise houses? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> what was the purpose of a praise house? What did a praise house look like? <clears throat> or to ask Robert Small's great-great-grandson, what do you know about your grandfather? Mm -hmm. You know, we know he stole a boat and he turned it over to the Union, became a congressman, etc. cetera. Yeah. Um, and if we can get them asking the questions, then we need those teachers to help them develop the skills mm -hmm. and the tools to get it out of them. It's no good if they hold it in. They have to become transmitters. They have to be messengers, messengers of fact, messengers of hope, <clears throat> messengers of growth, messengers of compassion, mm -hmm. of understanding. They need to help other people get to where they were when they were five, six, seven, eight years old, where they had no prejudice, where they had not been taught the wrongs that you and I grew up being taught mm -hmm. inadvertently in some cases, but by blocking the history, that was not inadvertent. That was intentional. Well, and you've just described, you know, the age group that is really formidable years and future heart centered leaders in the making. So that's right. Beautiful. Well, I am so grateful for your time and expertise and it was an absolute delight to meet you and interview you and I'm excited to read the book. Well, good. I will send you one as soon as we have one. And if you, your listeners out there, um, you know, it, it's, it's called common, uh, sharing common ground. What do we, we have will, in common? We will put all the details in the episode description and I always end the podcast with my list of five things for living a purposeful life. Follow your heart, have passion, do your best, know your truth, and always be in love with the journey. So this is Deb Crow. Thank you once again for joining me on this special, special edition of Imperfect with Mayor Billy. And we look forward to seeing you next time on Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure.